All right, everyone. It's six fifteen, and I, when I sent the invitation out for those that'll be joining us online, I said for six fifteen. So I want to be as punctual as possible, which I'm not exactly the king of that to begin with. So, but um, I really am looking forward to this John study. Is there anybody that does not have a hard copy of the handout for tonight? Does anybody need one? Is there anybody who doesn't <laughs> doesn't need one? I don't need it. Okay. Anybody else? Well, let's uh, let's pray, and we'll go ahead and get into it, and um, we'll walk through this as well as I. I hope you brought a way to just take some basic notes because. We'll, we'll have some things that are not in these handouts. I, I don't want to be like, I don't want to load you down with too much information in these by themselves. Uh, but there's definitely some things we'll talk about that's not in here um, that'll be beneficial. But let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you in the precious name of Jesus. Thank you uh, for such a wonderful day and just an opportunity uh, to get together and just study your word and to see what you have to say about some things. And I just pray that you enter me as sin self and fill me your Holy Spirit. And uh, Lord, that we would just uh, leave this study every time, just having grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and just loving you and knowing you more. Thankful for those that are here with us now and those that are joining us online. And we give these things to you. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So on the handout, <clears throat> I'm just going to use this as kind of a bare bones guide. And then we'll come down. I... I absolutely love, I mean, I, I love the whole Bible, but I, I love, absolutely love the Gospel of John. And um, to me, if I was on a desert island, deserted island just by myself, and I had to have one book in the New Testament that I could just have with me and read, I think it would be John. And just some basic things to know, um, the author is the Apostle John, not, not John the Baptist. Uh, obviously wrote this Gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which um, the word gospel means good news, and inspiration means breathed out by God. So when we talk about uh, the Word of God, the Bible, it is uh, the breath of God, literally. It's given to us by God. And that's 2 Timothy 3.16. And, you know, a lot of times in the Bible, specifically with the gospel writers, uh, we don't always have a statement in them that says, hey, I, I, John, wrote this gospel. But when you look at John, uh, there's several clues that let us know who it is. And really, uh, John has ne- the authorship of John has never been questioned up until about the last hundred years. And, you know, everything is questioned now, but with no merit. But um, we know, like if you read the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, you can see certain events and situations that the disciples were in where they are named. And you can look at some comparison passages in John, and you can tell by process of elimination from comparing with those other Gospels that he was there, and it could only be him. And in fact, he actually admits authorship without giving his name in John 21 
in verse 24. And, um, you know, he, he often talks about himself in third person, like the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, that was, it's a term of endearment. And it wasn't uncommon for rabbis to speak about themselves in third person like that as an act of humility. Uh, but I do, I can't help but find some of it humorous because, um, like, for instance, when, when uh, Peter and John are running to the tomb, you know, Mary's told them about the empty tomb and they're running to go uh, see the empty tomb. Uh, John was writing about himself in third person about that disciple and how he passed Peter on the way. So evidently he was a faster runner. <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw a hilarious meme the other day um, from some of those office characters. And one of them was pretending to be John. said, John, uh, John was talking to Peter. He said, Peter, I wrote about you. Uh, Peter said, really? What did you write about me walking on the water? He goes, no, how I beat you to the tomb that day. How I was, I was faster to the tomb than you. Um, so we, we know beyond his shout it out, it's, it's John. And, and the way he writes, he includes certain details that could only be said of somebody that had an eyewitness account of these things. Uh, he's got intimate details that's even, uh, even varies from the other Gospels. Now, as an important side note, and I want to talk about this for a minute because it's, it's going to set a foundation for everything we say in this study. Um, but when we talk about the Bible, you know, being the Word of God, you know, really, uh, no matter what somebody believes, no matter what religion or title or belief system they claim, at the end of the day, there's only two types of authority. There's an objective authority and a subjective authority. There is objective truth and there's subjective truth. And subjective truth is really, when you break it down, it's really nothing more than an opinion. It's, it's what I think is right and wrong and, or what I think about God is true or you know the, the whole my truth thing, which is really a, a misnomer. There is no such thing as my truth. There's, there's just truth and then there's lies and falsehood. Uh, and then there is objective truth. Uh, in other words, objective truth would be true uh, even if I had never been born to have an opinion about it. Um, you know, like even in like the mathematical world, two plus two would be four, whether or not Brennan Vaughn had ever been born to have an opinion about that. Uh, gravity would be true. You know, if you jump off a skyscraper and say, I don't believe in gravity, you know, it's, it's not going to end well for you because that's objective truth. Well, we have objective truth when it comes to the Bible as well. And if we don't have an objective standard for what we believe, then at the end of the day, it really is just subjective. It's what I think. It's, it's, it's my experience or it's my vision or my logic. And, and we have to have an objective standard to keep us all in line. Um, and when it comes to the Bible specifically, you know, we're not just talking about a collection of nursery rhymes or folklore. It is the Word of God. And one of the reasons that we uh, say that we believe sola scriptura or scripture alone, Genesis to Revelation, uh, the early church realized fairly early on that they needed a system in which to vet what was truly inspired by God's scripture and, and what was not. Because even a lot of the writings of the apostles themselves weren't necessarily inspired. I mean, they wrote stuff all the time. That was how they communicated back then. So how can we know for sure 
what's inspired scripture and what's not. And the, the early church came up with a fourfold test. And, you know, I've got to alliterate everything. So I've got them all marked with an A so we can remember these things. But the first thing is apostolic authorship. In other words, was the letter or book written directly by an apostle or one of their close associates? Uh, like, for example, uh, John obviously was an apostle, but Mark was not. Uh, Mark was a close associate of Peter. In fact, uh, he was actually Peter's copyist. And so in a very real sense, um, we, might, we, we could also say that the Gospel of Mark might could be called the Gospel of Peter because he's writing from Peter's perspective. And so it, it had to be written by an apostle or close associate. The second thing was antiquity. Was it written during the right time period? The letter or book couldn't have been written by an apostle unless it was written uh, after approximately 37 A.D. and prior to around 96 A.D., which is yet another reason we know that Revelation was the last book to be inspired by God. Um, <clears throat> but then there was acceptance. Was the letter or book widely accepted and in circulation among the early churches? Uh, because they knew what was going on. I mean, they knew who the apostles were. They knew what the scriptures were. Was it accepted by the churches? Uh, also, accuracy. Did the teachings of the letter book blatantly contradict other books that passed the other test? That's why the Gnostic Gospels never made it into uh, inspired scripture or the canon of scripture because the teachings were just so heretical. Uh, like, for example, uh, in the... Uh, like the, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, which really wasn't even written by Thomas. But in that so-called Gospel of Thomas, uh, it, it has a lot to say about uh, the boyhood of Jesus, which the Bible actually doesn't say a whole lot about. But when Jesus in John chapter 2, as we're going to see, when Jesus turned the water into wine, that is called the beginning of miracles. It was the first miracle of Jesus. But the Gospel, the gospel of Thomas... Uh, recites some miracles that Jesus supposedly did as a boy. One of them was, uh, for instance, supposedly there were some kids picking on Jesus, and, you know, so I guess so he could be accepted. You know, Jesus was so concerned about that. So he could be accepted. Uh, he took these, like, clay pigeons and touched them and made them turn into real pigeons, and all the kids loved Jesus after that. We know that's not true because John said that he didn't do any miracles until his ministry. Um, when he turned water into wine, he never had a reason to, which is pretty amazing because, you know, working in a carpenter shop and, and I mean, life would have just been so much easier if he just used his deity to get stuff done. You know, Joseph tells him to go, uh, you know, do a project. And, you know, back then they didn't have DeWalt and power tools and everything else. And so, I mean, how much easier would it have been just to, you know, I mean, it's amazing. The God that created the trees that he was carving was having to do all that by hand, just like any other human. And so we know that that's false, but it, it failed that test. It wasn't accurate to what the inspired scripture says. And so when we go through John, this, this is the word of God. We can have confidence in the Bible. Uh, a God that can't keep his word is a God that can't be trusted. And so uh, this is the word of God. And this is also important because... The Gospel of John passes all of these tests with flying colors. And this is why, as I mentioned, we know that such things as the Gnostic Gospels and any other modern revelation or, or so-called holy books, 
They cannot be considered inspired scripture because they fail all of these tests. Um, the date of writing, most likely between 85 and 90 A.D. And this is important because the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. And you can understand that the Jewish temple, it was the center of Jewish life. And for it to be destroyed, they didn't know what was up and what was down. I mean, it really, it really destroyed their life. And so they've, most of them have been run out of Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. Where do we go? What do we look to? Well, here's John showing them that you know, they don't need a temple because uh, for those that are saved, we're the temple and Christ is the great high priest. This, he took that opportunity uh, to write the book of John. Um, <clears throat> The main theme, of course, Jesus is the Son of God, or He's also God the Son, we could say that. Um, each gospel looks at Jesus from a slightly different angle. Matthew looks at Jesus uh, as the Jewish Messiah. That's in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23. Mark, as we, we went through the whole book of Mark over a period of about two years, uh, Mark looks at Jesus as a suffering servant, Mark 10 and verse 45. Um, Luke looks at Jesus as the Son of Man. That's in chapter 19 and verse 10. And then John looks at Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, John chapter 1 and verse 49, since I'm already here anyway, um, it says, uh, Nathaniel answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. And this is really important to know uh, about how John compares to these other Gospels. But one of the main ways that John differs from the other Gospels is that in the other Gospels, the true identity of Jesus is pretty much kept a secret from pretty much everyone until after his resurrection. Uh, with John, the central focus, even in chapter 1, lets us know that Christ is the incarnate Word, the Son of God, and God in the flesh. Uh, the synoptic Gospels, and, and I'll use that phrase a lot, when, when I say the synoptic Gospels, I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic means to see with one eye. And those Gospels follow basically the same narrative. Um, they have a lot of the same stories. Um, whereas John, now this is important. I didn't put this in here, but this is good to know. John only shares 8% in common with the other Gospels. So John is about 92% unique uh, and so it, it kind of does its own thing a little bit. But the other Gospels kind of build Jesus from the ground up, whereas John just comes right out of the gate and builds Jesus from heaven down. And so it's very, very strong on the deity of Jesus Christ and Him being the Son of God. Now as far as the outline, just to kind of give you a view from 30,000 feet, um, the book of John has four major sections that better help us to understand the purposes of the book. The first section is the prologue from chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And we're going to work our way through that tonight uh, as kind of a precursor to what we're going to see. But then the second section is known as the book of signs uh, from chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 12 and verse 50. Uh, Jesus performs seven miraculous signs in order to prove that he is the Son of God. However, the people still reject him. Um, the signs in order are as follows. You've got the, 
turning of water into wine, the cleansing of the temple, the healing of the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and then, of course, the, the crescendo, the pinnacle of all that would have to be the raising of Lazarus in John 11. And, you know, some theologians have argued, well, you know, the ultimate sign would be the resurrection. There's no doubt about that. But I think the reason they group those seven together is because it's in the first half of the book. Um, so that's just the way I, I put it out there. Um, then the third section is known as the book of glory. And that's chapter 13, verse uh, 2, or through chapter 20 and verse 31. Christ is glorified in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is also different from the other gospels and that the other gospels seem to emphasize the human side of the cross, the suffering and shame, while John focuses on the glory of the cross. What we're going to find is that in the first uh, 13 chapters to the end of chapter 12, to be specific, the Jews reject Christ so utterly and completely. I'm talking about from the leadership all the way down uh, to the low class. They rejected him so utterly and completely that at that time, it's almost like Christ stopped proving himself to them. And now he's just on the road to the cross, which is essentially the road to glory. And, um, and so that's something just to keep in mind. Then the, it closes out with the epilogue in chapter 21, where John gives a summary of the events and teachings of the book. <clears throat> and so with that in mind, this is where I want you to take some additional notes. I want to give you nine themes of the book of John. And we're going to see these in the prologue. And what's, what's unique about the book of John, uh, more so than any other book of the Bible, is that in the prologue, the prologue reads almost like a table of contents. Um, I mean, you know, John literally says what he, the whole purpose, all of the themes of John. And as we go through the book of John, you can read in any place in the book of John. And you say, wow, I, I saw that in the prologue. I saw that theme in the prologue. And you're, even as we go through it, you're going to see it for yourself. Hey, I saw that in the prologue. And so I want to lay these nine themes out for you. The first theme in John's gospel is, is Jesus Christ as eternal God. Um, let's read the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That is the clearest single statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. He was not created. He was not born. He did not have a beginning. Uh, he is from eternity past to eternity future. And you say, well, uh, Brandon, explain that to me. I can't, I can't do that. I just, because I'm, I'm trying to take my finite mind and explain the infinite. All I can tell you is what Scripture clearly says, that not only was Christ in the beginning with God, that's speaking of God the Father, but He is God. The Word was with God and He was God. But then in verse 2, it says the same was in the beginning with God. I, I believe this is speaking of the Trinity. He was with God. He was God. And he was with God. He was with God the Father. He was God. And he was with God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, 
We'll see this theme over and over and over and over in the plainest language imaginable. But then the second theme in the book of John is the light that was rejected. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Uh, that speaks of Christ coming into the world as the light of the world. And the darkness, when it, when it says the darkness comprehended it not, that's an old English word that it doesn't mean they just didn't understand him, which was certainly true, but they rejected him outright. Uh, the world rejected him, the light. And we'll see his rejection seen in a few different ways. But uh, the third theme that we need to recognize is the witness of Christ, um, the Messiah. Or I, I should say the witnesses, plural, of Christ the Messiah. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, throughout the book of John, especially like when you get to chapter 5, where Jesus actually gives a list of the witnesses. Um, there are several witnesses in the book of John that testify that Jesus Christ is the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. You know, but, and, he, and he had to. Because, I mean, think about it. Just somebody shows up on the scene one day, I just wanted you to know I'm the Messiah. You know, anybody could say that. But John is the first witness. And if you think about the term witness, it's a legal term, just like in a court of law. You know, they call witnesses to the stand to prove something either happened or didn't happen legally. And when it comes to John the Baptist, uh, the very last words of the Old Testament prophets were that, that the Lord would send a forerunner, a messenger to go before the Lord and prepare the way before him. And then there was a 400 year silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You go read the last words of Malachi. He's talking about the coming forerunner of the Lord. So John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist never performed a miracle. And yet he's one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. And people recognized that he was sent from God, and he came preparing the way of the Lord. He was only the first witness. But as we're going to see, the Old Testament Scriptures were a witness to Christ. Um, the miracles he performed were a witness of Christ. And so he's got all these witnesses proven that he's Christ. And so uh, the Jews were without excuse, and we are too. Um, another theme that we need to get, the, the fifth theme that I want you to see. Uh, fourth, I'm sorry. The rejection of Christ by both Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world... And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Now, a few quick things. I'm going through this quickly because I want you to see it from 30,000 feet. And then we're going to take uh, each study, and we're going to go step by step through everything we've talked about. And we're going to go slower. Um, but one thing I do want you to know that... When it talks about in verse 10, when he was in the world and the world was made by him, that's an incredible statement. The creator came into his creation. Mm -hmm. 
as a man. But it said the world knew him not. Now that word, the word knew, uh, is also an old English word. And it means something a little bit different many times in the Bible than what we think of. It's not simply a head knowledge. Oh, well, they didn't know who Jesus was. Well, that's, that's certainly true. Um, but I think I just lost him. I'll send him the audio, I guess. I don't know what happened. But anyway, um, anyway, um, the word new here, it actually speaks of an intimate love. Like, for example, um, it talks about, um, like in the Old Testament, and I'm not trying to get graphic, but I think we understand what it's talking about. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's not, that's not just talking about a head knowledge. Um, or in the New Testament, we're going to see this when we get to John 17. Um, in Christ's high priestly prayer to the Father, he talks about how he knew God the Father and God the Father knew him before the foundation of the world. That's certainly speaking of more than just a head knowledge. It's an intimate love that comes from a knowledge. And so in this situation, when it says the world knew him not, it means they hated him. They loved him not. They rejected him. Utter and complete rejection by both Jews and Gentiles. Um, But uh, then the fifth theme that I want you to know is salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to see this over and over and over and over again. Look at verse 12. But as many received him, and when it, verse 11, real quick to back up, uh, verse 11, when it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not, that's talking specifically about the Jews. His own speaks of his own people. He came to the Jews, they rejected him. Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Um, the word belief, or believe in all its many forms, is used over a hundred times in the book of John. So I'd say it's, it's a pretty central theme. And when it speaks of belief, it's talking about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, we could never do anything. You know, our, our good works can never erase our bad works. You know, God doesn't have a scale where when we stand before Him in judgment, where He goes, well, okay, your, your good works are out, you know, they out your way your bad works come on in. Because we need to understand that our sin is a legal offense against God. And even in the state of Utah, if you break the law and go before the judge, let's say it's a serious crime. And you say, well, judge, I know I'm guilty. You know, you got all the evidence, but I just want you to know I'm a good person. You know, I, I go to church. I give to charity. I work at a soup kitchen. I, I, I help little old ladies across the street. Um, the judge is going to say, what does that have to do with the fact you broke the law? It's the same way in God's heaven. Our good works can erase our sin. And so how can God justify sinners without himself becoming unjust? Because as a righteous judge, he can't sweep sin under the rug. That's why Christ had to come and die in our place. And God, the Father, punished him for what we did wrong. And the only way to salvation is to repent of our sin and our own self-righteousness and say, Lord, I'm not righteous. I'm not worthy. But Christ, you are, and I put my faith and trust in Him. And through faith, He'll impute His righteousness to us. And that's how we can be made right with God. So salvation by faith is a huge 
uh, theme in the book of John. But I put in parentheses in my notes, and I want you to do the same thing uh, by this fifth theme. It also, this also speaks of a new covenant people made up of believers, both Jew and Gentiles. Now, I firmly believe that God does have a future for the Jews and for Israel. I believe that. But that's really not what's talked about a whole lot in, in John. What is talked about is a new covenant people that God is working in and through, being, that being the church. The church is made up of believers, both Jew and Gentile. We are considered a new covenant people with Christ. And so we see it even here in this text. We're going to see it over and over again in John. <coughs> Excuse me. But the sixth theme is the sovereignty of God in salvation. I mentioned this the other night. Uh, I'll read them together, beginning verse 12. So, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we see this, this, this balance, this kind of paradox between salvation by faith and man's responsibility to repent and believe, but also the fact that it is God that saves sinners. We're going to see that a lot too. Um, but then number seven, trying to move on and not be too long-winded here. Um, number seven, obviously, would have to be the incarnation. Look at verse 14. And the Word, which we already saw in verse 1, which is Jesus Christ, who is God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, um, this is amazing because it doesn't say that, that Christ here was just simply born or that he, he got His beginning in a manger in Bethlehem. It said that the God, the eternal God that had always been, took on human flesh and came to this earth. That's an, that's an amazing statement. Uh, the God that created everything walked among his creatures. Um, but then uh, the eighth theme that I want you to pay attention to is Christ as a new and greater Moses. Christ as a new and greater Moses. And you can go ahead and put in parentheses for that same one. He is also the end of the law to them that believe. Look at verse 15. And John bare witness of him, cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we all received grace for grace. And then he says, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see that contrast there between Moses and the law and Jesus and grace? Christ is coming as a newer and greater Moses. Just like Moses came to save the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, Christ comes to save His people from their sin. And the reason that Moses and the Israelites failed in the wilderness is because they couldn't keep the law of God perfectly, just like we can't. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And I seriously doubt that most people could even memorize them, much less do them. And in fact... I'll show you how bad it was. Um, the Israelites, they hadn't been out of Egypt for five minutes. And Moses goes to get the law of God. And by the time he makes it down the mountain, they had already melted down their gold and made a golden calf. And not only did they worship that golden calf, but they said, Behold, the God that delivered us from Egypt. And so, uh, it, you know, it's really symbolic. We don't need to miss this. When Moses got mad and he threw those 
tablets down and they broke is very symbolic of how the law had already been broken before it had even been given to them. And so the, nobody has ever been made righteous by the law. God, God will never look at anybody's life and say, man, you just did so good at keeping my laws. <laughs> you just, you honored me every single day in thought, word, and deed. Good for you. It's just not going to happen. Because, you know, God's standard is not even goodness. It's, it's absolute perfection. Because He can't allow one sin into heaven. If He did, we'd be in the same mess up there that we are down here. There would be cemeteries and hospitals and prisons. And uh, I'm thankful that none of those things are up there. Um, and so that's why Christ had to come. And this is why Christ succeeded, because He did keep the law. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. So understand that Christ didn't just die for us. He didn't just die in our place. He lived in our place. He fulfilled the law perfectly for us, the life that we can never live and the death that we can never die and the resurrection that we can never achieve. He did it all. And so that's why salvation is by grace uh, through faith and not works of the law. But then the last thing that we'll see <coughs> over and over again uh, is Christ as the express image of God. Look at verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Now, I've got a little bit of time. So y'all listen pretty fast tonight. So I want to I kind of come in for a landing with you understanding this very important point. Uh, the cults love verse 18 because they take it out of context to try to say that Jesus isn't God. He's not eternal God. And the, the logic goes something like this. Well... No man has seen God at any time. People saw Jesus. Therefore, Jesus can't be God. That's the logic. I'm going to tell you why that's extremely flawed. Because what it's saying here is that no man has seen God the Father at any time. We see this concept in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, if you remember at the baptism of Jesus, all three persons of the Godhead were seen or were present. I guess I'll put it that way. But you see Jesus in the Jordan River. You see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove out of heaven. But the Father's not seen, right? He speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son and whom I'm well pleased. We see this concept. But even in the Old Testament, every single time that God is seen by men, it's always the pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus Christ is seen uh, many times in the Old Testament. These are called, in, in theology, we call these Christophanies. And, and so uh, Christ, in the Old Testament, anytime you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's always speaking about Jesus Christ. This is not, it's not even, there's not even a question about that. Uh, I'll give you an example. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll, re we'll rehash all these things when I come back to this. But I can't not say this while we're here. But for example, in Exodus 3, when, when God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, uh, the first thing he's called is the angel of the Lord. But then he's called God. He's called the Lord, Jehovah God. And even when uh, Moses, you know, God tells him, uh, God tells Moses to go back to Pharaoh and say that, you know, you need to set my children free. And Moses is like, well, who do I tell him sent me? You know, what's your name? What do I tell him? And he said in big, bold letters, I am 
that I am. Not, not the I was, but the I am, the eternal, always in the present God. And what's amazing about this is in John chapter 8, we're going to see when Jesus was disputing with the Jews. And he told him, he said, you know, Abraham, your, your father, rejoiced to see my day and was glad in it. They said, you're not, you're not even, what did they say, 40, 50 years old? You're not, you're not even yet 40, I think is what they said. Or not 50. Yeah, 50. Because, you know, Jesus must have looked pretty aged, I would think. But then to say, you're not even 50 years old yet. And have you seen our father Abraham? And he said, yeah, I did. And he said, um, he said verily, verily I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone him because there was, no doubt in their, there was no doubt in their mind what he had just said. He said, the same God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, that's me. So that would have been blasphemy to the Jews. And so um, another instance we're going to see, for example, and I mentioned this the other night. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and and it was just such a powerful presence that even the seraphim, these angelic beings, that it's like they're trembling and they're covering themselves. And, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And even Isaiah was like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And it was just such an amazing, powerful thing. And John, we're going to see, John actually makes the statement later on that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. So Christ was the one high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. And so, uh, so understand that we see Christ as the representative of God in the Old Testament. But we also see that in the New Testament. He's the express image of God. So when people saw the incarnate Christ, they saw God. God in the flesh, the creator of all things, both visible and invisible came into His creation to die for and by His creatures. And so <clears throat> I, want you to, I want you to keep this list of themes because as we go through it, I want you to be able to say, hey, wait, there it is right there. Yep, there's that. Yep, oh, I see that theme. I mean, the prologue is really amazing because he really does map out in like a table of contents what is going to be said and what we're going to learn about. And so with that in mind... Um, my study questions for this time weren't quite as detailed. I've actually, as the study goes along, I've got some really interesting links to like videos and articles that we're going to be able to watch and see as we go through this that are going to be very pertinent to whatever we're, subject we're looking at. But uh, just to see who paid attention tonight, uh, and I guess for most of this you could probably turn pretty quickly, but uh, what is the fourfold test that the early church used to determine the inspiration of writing her book. And if you don't know them all, just say one. Apostolic, Apostolic authorship had to be written by an apostle or close associate. What was another one? Acceptance. Yeah, acceptance by the church. Was it accepted and circulated by the early church? What was another one? Antiquity. Antiquity. Was it written during the right time period? Um, what was the last one? Acceptance. Yeah. Your, yeah, accuracy. Does it line up with the other inspired books? Uh, that's how we can determine why the Bible is the Word of God and, and nothing else is. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I cannot stop coughing. <laughs> um, what is the central... Now, we, we looked at a lot of themes. But what is the central theme of the book of John? 
I, I got another one. I'm, I got to reload here. What's, an, what's the central theme of the book of John? Yeah, that Jesus is the eternal God. Exactly. Um, how do the other three Gospels look at Jesus as far as their themes go? How do they look at Jesus? Matthew was the Jewish Messiah. Matthew looks at Christ as the Jewish Messiah. What about Mark? Mark, Yeah, suffering, <laughs> suffering servant. Yeah, see, more bien. What about Luke? The Son of Man. And then, of course, John we just saw as eternal God. Um, what were the four main sections of John's gospel that we outlined there? Prologue. Then what? Book of Signs. Book of Glory. The epilogue. That's right. Um, <clears throat> what are the seven signs of Jesus? And I've got these in order right there at the top of the same page here. <laughs> Turning the water into wine, cleansing the temple, yeah, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, and then the crescendo was the raising of Lazarus, and, and the Jews rejected every bit of it. Um, then, um, how does John differ from the other Gospels as it pertains to the cross? The other gospel writers focused in kind of on what when it came to the cross? The human side of the cross. Yeah, the human side, the suffering, the shame, the curse. Whereas John, he looks at the cross and, man, it's nothing but glory. I mean, Christ was glorified in his death and resurrection. Um, how does John differ from the other gospels on the identity of Jesus? Other gospels... Um, they kind of keep his identity a secret. Nobody really knows who he is until after his resurrection. Or as I said, they build Jesus from the ground up, whereas John builds Jesus from heaven down. Hey, he's God. He's God in the flesh. He's God eternal. I mean, John just comes out of the gate guns blazing. I mean, he doesn't want anybody to have any, <laughs> any mistake about who Jesus is. I tell you, verse 1, you can't, you can't make it any bolder. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you would phrase that that would make it more... Yeah, and what's interesting about this, the um, like if you were to go to BibleHub.com, you could look at any of the available Greek manuscripts and over sixty English translations of the Bible. There's not one variant about that. It reads the exact same. And the cults, you know, like Jehovah's Witness, that teach that Jesus was a created being. Um, if you look at their own Bible, they've written without any. They totally ignored Hebrew and Greek. But they, they changed that to, instead of saying Jesus was God or the Word was God, they say He was a God with a little g. There's no Greek article by which to do that. And if you go to their website and try to look up the translation committee, it says that uh, they do not want to release the names of any of the translators because they wanted to give God all the glory. But the real reason is because you, there's nobody to vet. You can't vet who they are, their credentials, or whether or not they can speak Hebrew and Greek. Just, you know, let's just, just take a Bible and just <laughs> doodle out what we don't want to be there, you know. But um, so does anybody have, and this is a great um, format to do this, and that is to, to ask questions or 
have discussion or, you know, even comments, criticism. You know, one, one kind of humorous thing is that we were, when we were going through the book Knowing God by J.R. Packer, you know, he's been dead for a few years now, and we can say whatever we want to. It doesn't matter, but, but you're staring at the author of these, you know, these study guides, so if there's an issue, we can talk about it. Um, anybody, and anybody online can ask questions too, whether you type it or I don't know if your mics are enabled or not. But um, And also too, I know that the... Uh, I know that the live stream got cut off for a little bit, but I'm also recording the audio. So um, if y'all would just type your emails, I will get you the audio, and that way you can have the whole thing unbroken. Does anybody have anything? I have one thing that I've never seen before, which would help me with all my Mormon, <coughs> all my Mormon friends and coworkers. And that's in 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son yes. from the Father. Yes. The only. And uh, the word begotten there too, I'm glad you brought that up. We'll, like I said, we'll get all this. I don't want to give like eight weeks worth in one night. But begotten does not mean like born. Like he, he came from God in the sense that, you know, children come from their parents. Begotten really means the only unique Son. He's, he's different than we are. Because he's, etern- he's the eternal Son of God. We were adopted in the family of God, born again into the family of God. So there's a, a distinction there. Anybody, anybody else? Anything else? Thank you all so much for joining us on the Zoom meeting. And uh, we'll, we'll try to do this every third Sunday evening unless we change that, and we'll, in which case we'll let everybody know. And... Uh, God bless everybody that joined. We'll see y'all in a few weeks, I guess. We had we had about seven or eight people watching. <laughs>